Welcome back to What Happens Next, the podcast that examines some of the biggest challenges facing our world and asks the experts what will happen if we don't change and what can we do to create a better future. I'm Dr. Susan Carland. Keep listening to find out what happens next. When you really encounter something new and vitalizing, uh, whether it's through a book or a game or a piece of art, um, it renews our sense of the world and it gives us some, you know, a, a kind of ecstasy that comes along with that. Some of these these texts or pop culture kind of um, phenomenons, they're, they're all kind of based in a sense of um, hope for the future. They're based in goodness prevailing. It, it takes our dreams and, and makes them feel real for, you know, a couple of hours. A quick content warning before we begin. This episode includes mention of drug use. If you'd like to avoid this, skip ahead to the timestamp indicated in the show notes. In August 1979, 16-year-old James Dallas Egbert left his dorm room at Michigan State University and disappeared. A week later, his frantic parents hired a private investigator named William Deere to search for their missing son. Deer soon learned that Egbert had been playing a fantasy role-playing game in his spare time, Dungeons and Dragons. As far as Deer was concerned, this game, full of monsters and magic, was to blame for Egbert's disappearance. In the PI's opinion, which he didn't hesitate to share publicly, the young man had probably entered the steam maintenance tunnels beneath the university campus and lost his grip on reality. The case fascinated the media, and the connection between the game and Egbert's mysterious disappearance was too good not to publish. In the coverage of the story, D&D was called a bizarre and secretive cult. Egbert was eventually found. He actually called Deer and revealed his own whereabouts, but the damage to Dungeons and Dragons had been done. It was the height of the satanic panic in the US and UK, and the game was swept up in the fervour. Parents and religious leaders feared that excessive immersion in the fantasy realm of D&D could blur the lines between fiction and reality for players. As we heard last week on What Happens Next, there are still stigmas attached to escapist activities even today, whether it's a role-playing game or a Netflix marathon. Are those misgivings and societal perceptions reasonable? Or can escapism offer a necessary break from the stresses of everyday life? Keep listening to find out what happens next. Professor Michael W. Clune is a critic and a professor at Case Western Reserve University. He's the author of Game Life, a memoir about computer games and of Whiteout, an account of his life while he was struggling with heroin addiction. The result is a singular point of view on escapism. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What do you see as the connection between escapism and video games, for example? Well, so um, for me, uh, something that's going to be a, a genuine escape um, is is something that's going to give me a genuinely new perspective on the world um, and is going to take me out of my habitual frames of reference. And what, in my view, what games do, the best games, um, are they give you a new set of senses, a new set of emotions a new way to look at the world, a new way to experience the world, new goals, 
Um, and it's almost like you're being put into a new body and a new mind to a degree um, and, 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 and moving around in it for a while. So I've always felt uh, games are a really effective way um, of, of performing that, that kind of perforation or, or escape. And then how would you see the relationship between escapism and addiction, say drug addiction? Yeah, so I, I feel, and, and, and very often I think those two notions are conflated, where people will um, worry that uh, if, if someone is escaping, um, that they're, they may fall into addiction. For me, addiction is more like a collapsed or failed kind of escape, where when you really encounter something new and vitalizing, uh, whether it's through a book or a game or a piece of art, um, it renews our sense of the world and it gives us some, you know, a, a kind of ecstasy that comes along with that. I feel like addiction just reduces, it takes away all of the magic, all of the sort of mind expansion and reduces it to simple um, jolts of dopamine reliably delivered. And so what happens with the addict is far from actually escaping anything, they become trapped and enslaved um, in a in a sort of hamster wheel of looking for that next head of dopamine, whether it's through gambling, through drug use, or whatever. On last week's episode, Michael discussed the difference between video games designed to draw you into a narrative and video games designed to trigger those dopamine hits. Yeah, just as you were talking, I was thinking about just how blurred the lines can be. Like you said, sometimes I'll hear video games in the background and I'll think, oh, that just sounds like what in Australia we would call pokies, these poker machines, that constant dinging sound and the the, the lights. And I think it, that's so much like that. But then as you said about other games, the, the more narrative um, type of game, it's similar to a book in that there are times when I don't want to put my book down. I'm so involved in the narrative. I'm going to lose sleep because I want to finish the story. But generally, we wouldn't see that as being a negative addict addiction or escapism. It's just we're, we're immersed in this narrative and it means, okay, I get a little bit less sleep. And I guess what you're saying is the second type of video game you spoke about is more in, in that line, even though we can sort of see that there are similarities between, like I said, I want to lose sleep. I want to finish the book. No one talked to me. I'm trying to finish this story. That kind of has echoes of the negative aspects of addiction we would talk about, but we don't see it that way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's right, and it's it's interesting because when I'm absorbed in a book or absorbed in a game, um, I'm intent on it and I'm fascinated on it, uh, fascinated by it. But the 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 way that I enter into it is much more complex and nuanced than simply pulling the slot machine or taking a, a hit of uh, of the drug, and that. That architecture um, that leads you to become absorbed in that story, I just think it operates in a different, according to a different logic than addiction. And one way of thinking about it is as much as I love losing myself in books or losing myself in games, um, it's not like I'm going to sell my TV, <laughs> right? To, yeah. uh, or, or my wife is going to leave me because, you know what I'm saying? Like, like uh, uh, there's a certain level of consequence. One of the easiest ways to define addiction is your life becomes a chaos and a disaster and because of the drug or the, the, the object, and yet you still can't stop. 
I've never experienced that with uh, uh, the kinds of absorption, the kinds of escapism that you're describing with books. Hmm. Monash University Business School Associate Professor David Orazi studies pseudo-nostalgia, the manufactured longing for a place and a time that's past. Think Stranger Things and the 80s. Do you think that there is anything negative about us enjoying pseudo-nostalgia or is it just, you know, it's a fun, relatively frivolous but non-problematic escapism? I think it's up to you uh, how to what extent you engage into it's a form of fantasy right so uh, to what extent we are attracted I, I, I don't see anything wrong in principle into being attracted to a different place right it's, we, we we take breaks all the time right by some are mundane by mm. scrolling like social media or going on tiktok and watching videos of cats and some are a little bit more elaborate when look, reading a book or uh, watching a movie as long as like you don't go there too often, right? The beauty of escapes, the beauty of uh, accessing these extraordinary realms is that the experience is temporary. So as long as that is not the norm, it's a, a break that is in no way adaptive, is useful for you. It allows you to recuperate energies and to get like positive distractions. David's research also examines escapist activities, including live action role playing or LARPing. People participate in LARPs to receive a number of benefits, he says. So uh, some people do that for enjoyment. They just want to uh, uh, escape. So it can be a form of holiday. So for three days, instead of going to Bali, you go to Westeros and suddenly you play Game of Thrones with great houses. Some people like actually be a challenge. So uh, role-playing games and even more live actual role-playing games allow you to experience situations that you will never be able to access because you've never been in the Middle Ages or uh, in Westworld. So some people want to see how would they behave in certain situations that are not normally encountered? So it's enjoyment, it's escape, it's education, but it's also um, empowerment. So a lot of people can understand things about themselves by putting them... These are simulations, right? They provide us with situations. And some people want to understand how would we react to these situations that are uncommon. And it's not just a mini holiday or a challenge, David says. Escapism can teach us things. Fun fact, I learned how to pick a lot during a lot. So that, that, that in a way has an element really what you asked. <laughs> Cultural critic and writer Dr. Clem Bastow's PhD project focused on the intersection between autism, screenwriting and action movies. As a neurodiverse person, they say escaping into a film just for a little while can feel a bit like becoming a new version of themselves. I probably have a triple PhD in, in daydreaming. Um, but I think in a way, you know, as somebody who's autistic, for example, I, I mean, I watch narratives to not so much see myself reflected, but I guess a version of myself. And, and so when I'm watching, you know, an action movie, that is seeing characters that I relate to um, experiencing this kind of mastery of the world that, that you know, I don't necessarily day-to-day feel like I have access to. So I think I think that's a big part of it for me. Um, and some of it's just pure fantasy. Some of it is just, wouldn't it be nice to, you know, live on an off-world space colony or, or, or imagine being a mermaid? Like, <laughs> it kind of, it, it, it takes our dreams and, and makes them feel real for, you know, a couple of hours. Do you think escapism is necessary for the human condition? 
Um, yeah, it's really hard because I think there are people who are absolutely content uh, with their world, with their experience of the world, um, who maybe don't feel that need for escapism in such an acute way. And I think, I think it's maybe not so much a, a human condition as a condition of the, the circumstances in which humans find themselves. Um, because I suppose if you look at the history of popular media, uh, these types of films, books, you know, um, even music, I mean, I suppose they've kind of proliferated through the 20th and 21st century, which is not to say that people listening to Hildegard von Bingham back in the day were, you know, not necessarily seeking to escape the circumstances of their lives. But yeah, I think I think so much of it is because there are aspects of modern life that are not fulfilling for people. You know, we've become a highly individualized um, in many societies. I think, you know, part of escapism is for people who don't live in um, countries or societies where that sort of collective sense of family uh, is a big part of their day-to-day lives. I think a lot of the time that's maybe why they watch things like even Little Women, you know, like that's doesn't seem immediately relevant to to um, a lot of our experiences, but when that came out a couple of years ago, the great Greta Gerwig version of it, I think, I think people were really hungering for that. Imagine a world in which we were all looking out for each other. Um, uh, so yeah, I think I think it is a lot to do with the ways in which our lives have, you know, the ways in which we're expected to live our lives under all of these. Um, Systems. Dr. Whitney Monaghan is a lecturer in communications and media studies at Monash University and the co-convener of the Monash Gender and Media Lab. She doesn't think we're escaping anything at all, no matter how hard we try. Well, I'm not sure if we're actually escaping from our reality, but popular culture does give us lots of different worlds um, and identities and stories that we can kind of venture into for a short amount of time. Um, but we're never truly getting out of our real lives. We're always bringing our our full selves, our full realities, our full experiences to our interactions and encounters with those types of media. So we are escaping with a backpack of us, our other, our previous or current selves are coming with us. Absolutely, we're just carrying that baggage with us all the time. Um, in the way that we make sense of media, in the way that we kind of relate to in the way that we identify with a character or we don't identify with a character. That's all things that we bring from our everyday experience into our encounters with media. Even when we think we're just kind of switching off and when we're kind of tuning out for the day, we're still bringing that to the media encounter. Do you think when we do escape with our backpack, is that an important and necessary form of self-care is it a form of denial about who we are or is it, like you said, is it about us actually trying to experience a, a different window to a world that maybe we don't have access to in our everyday lives? Well, I think that um, we do that for a lot of different reasons. Like we engage with these kinds of pop culture um, films or television series for for entertainment, sure, we do it because we want to feel moved. Um, sometimes we want to feel happy. We want to feel joy. Sometimes we want to get out of our own kind of lived experience and experience or or know the world through someone else's eyes. And I think that's what film does for us. Mm. Um, 
But on that notion of self-care, actually, there's this interesting thing that happened around the time of the pandemic when there was this phenomenon of binge watching. I don't know if you're a binge watcher, but... I would like to say no. <laughs> I'd actually want to know. I'll, I will tell you what I binge watch, but I'd be interested to know what do you binge watch. Mm. Anyway, finish your yeah, answer and then okay. we'll get back to that. So binge watching is this kind of guilty pleasure, right? Mm. Of like um, cons- consuming film and TV just excessively one after the other. But during the early days of the pandemic, binge watching was something that we did as a form of self-care, mm. right? We did it because... There was a lot of uncertainty, there's isolation, and we tuned on to something so that we could be part of a rhythm, enjoy conversation with other people about pop culture. Yeah, it was uh, Tiger King. Tiger King, yeah, absolutely. What a moment. (laughs) (laughs) What people's memories of the pandemic is often going to be is going to be sitting down and watching Tiger King and posting Tiger King memes, which is incredible. And it was also a kind of civic duty at that time because, you know, if we could stay at home, we should stay at home. Yeah. We were in in lockdown times. And so those that were staying at home and binge watching, they were kind of doing a civic duty. And so Mm. I think that's a pretty interesting form of kind of reframing our thinking about how we engage with media. Do you think that has carried over after the pandemic or do you think binge watching has uh, now has that sort of negative overlay again? Well, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, it's not, it doesn't need to be having a negative overlay. I don't think there, it needs to be a guilty pleasure. I think there are no guilty pleasures. It's just, oh, right. We just like the things that we like. We shouldn't feel bad about them. Unless you're squashing ants, then we should feel guilty. Okay, yeah. Then if that's your guilty pleasure, you can, you can hang on to that one. Although we've left the satanic panic far behind, Clem still sees a lot of moral judgment surrounding escapism. I think it's important to kind of, uh, yeah, avoid that idea of of pathologizing escapism or daydreaming. Um, but yes, obviously, if somebody is daydreaming to the point where you know, at the expense of food and rational thought, it can become problematic. But I actually think we probably need to do it more um, as a whole. I think I think so many aspects of our lives are there's that sense that we should be monetizing everything. And so yeah. hobbies become side hustles. And and um, I don't know, it's been really nice to reconnect with some hobbies of mine, which I can't monetize, you know, which I can't turn into jobs and to just do things for the sake of doing them and maybe not being all that great at them. Um, and I sort of feel like escapism and daydreaming kind of fits into that a bit. It's almost like we've been made to feel guilty for having leisure time. Yeah, absolutely, that we're not using our time appropriately. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really, and it's it's very pervasive. You know, I mean, people like you and I, like I think we're, we're capable of thinking pretty critically and I still find that it's very hard for me to just sit down and stare out a window. I sort of get up five minutes later and think I should be doing something. I should, you know, unpack the laundry basket. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Even if, like you said, it's not creating a side hustle out of it. If you're, even if you're not making money from it, there must always be industry attached Mm, to what we do. Productivity. Yeah. So Whitney, what's your escapist guilty pleasure binge watch? Well, I am a big fan of reality TV. Mm. I am just all over that every night. I think, oh, should I watch a serious film or should I watch 90 minutes of Married at First Sight? Couple screaming at each Mm -hmm. other. I'm always going to choose 
the reality. See, that's interesting. And I want to ask you about that because I think Married at First Sight is probably, I think it's the biggest show in Australia at the it's moment. It's the most it's, popular show in Australia. It is huge. And so trying to be part of the cultural moment, I have tried to watch it a couple of times. I found it so stressful watching people yell at each other and be mean to each other. There was no escapism for me in that. It was horrifying. So... But obviously I'm in the minority because people bloody love Married at First Sight. So is what's going on there? Am I, is the disjuncture with me? How do you find that relaxing? Well, I think that um, people watch that show for a lot of different reasons. And sometimes it's just to be part of the conversation. No. You watch it because you, you want to relate to people in your life, in your workplace. Um, you want to be able to go into work the next day and say, hey, what about that thing that happened on Married at First yes. Night? Um but yeah, for me, I think it's a kind of an interesting thing because it's the most popular show in Australia. And perhaps when we're watching it, maybe we're thinking this is just a drama of people yelling at each other and how ridiculous and everyone is is a horrible person on this show. Um, but for me, I think that show is really about negotiating gender norms, yeah. uh, relationships. It's about what we think happy relationships and marriages and futures should look like. And so that show is actually telling us quite a lot. And when we have conversations about it, we're doing that process of negotiating the meanings and, and kind of perhaps shaping and reshaping those norms. Which sounds very important and virtuous, which makes the things that I've been watching. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot put any intellectual overlay on it. I just love home renovation shows. <laughs> Back to back, just yet another renovation. And I think it is just the tidy, this is a problem. Now it's pretty and good. This is a problem. Now it's pretty and good. That's it. There is no, there's no greater message. There's no cognitive demand on me. I don't come out of it better. I don't think I come out of it worse. Life continues on. There is no social commentary to be made here. Um, I think what we realise is I am but a simple person. And perhaps you are engaging in things a bit more intellectual. I feel like I could intellectualize your... Okay, tell me. I need it. Go. What is it? Well, I think there's something about taking something that's messy and then and then fixing it up into, uh, you know, um, a nice looking house, right? Like that's that's a that's a reassuring kind of format that's that's kind of told and retold through those kinds of shows. And I think that's probably another reason why people like them because it makes them feel good. Not just the content, but the the kind of structure that it's consistently telling you. You go into that knowing things are going to start off bad mm, and the chaos and order. It's going to be chaotic, and then it's going to be ordered and beautiful and nice at, at the end. All our expert guests agree that indulging in a little escapism isn't anything to feel bad about. It may even help us tap into something special and necessary. On the path to escapism, and again, I believe that escaping. Our habitual mindsets is a kind of spiritual hygiene, really. Um, and I compare it to meditation. I meditate every day. And meditation puts me in touch with something that, that uh, Buddhists call emptiness, which is very distant from the ordinary world. And I enter that space and I return refreshed and renewed, right, with the different kinds of perspective on things. Um, so I think escapism is, 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 is very crucial. Uh, yeah, I, I think definitely, I think games have the capacity to facilitate our movement from my own body and mind and history to that of someone or something else. 
And I feel like readers, people who play games, people who enjoy art, that's really a capacity we develop. We develop a kind of, you know, a taste for slipping free of ourselves and our and our and our egos and our, you know, everything that's going on with us and seeing the world through someone or something else's eyes. You mentioned that a desire or a need for escapism is actually a fundamental part of the human condition, that, that we need it. Uh, it's a spiritual hygiene, as you said. Do you think the desire for escapism is becoming more pronounced in the modern world or is it pretty much at levels that it's always been? That's a really good question. And it's, it's, it's difficult to know in some ways because we just have so much more information of how people spend their leisure um, in, 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 recent, in recent years. But it's, it's hard for me to imagine that uh, people haven't always wanted escape. I think in many ways it has traditionally taken the form of religion, right? It might seem strange to think of religion in terms of an escape, but earlier when I described meditation as a uh, a way of getting outside of myself, that's a way that many religious traditions have seen religious practices. And so I think there's a continuum of different kinds. We just talked about escapism versus addiction. I think we could really like extend that. And on one pole, you might have religion and very serious religious practices, which after all are seeking to escape certain habits, certain desires, certain patterns, a certain egocentrism. Many religions have that at their core. You want to escape the self. Um, on the one hand, to, on the other hand, things like watching TV, playing games, or, uh, or reading literature. I don't want to say that religion is just the same as reading a book or, or playing a game. I don't think it is. I don't think it, people often practice it with the same seriousness. But I think it, it works with the same desire we all have, which is a sense that I think strengthens as we get older, that the world is becoming calcified, that my habits are um, shutting out aspects of reality that I used to, when, when I was a child perhaps, have greater access to. Whatever you're seeking and however you're seeking it, healthy escapism provides something we crave, a happily ever after. Here's Whitney. Do you think escapist entertainment can provide a sense of hope or optimism for the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, like what it, one of the things we've been talking about is that some of these these texts or pop culture kind of um, phenomenons, they're, they're all kind of based in a sense of um, hope for the future. They're based in goodness prevailing. And I think mm-hmm. they they do kind of give us a sense of the world as being okay in the end. And so I think they give us an attitude of hopefulness. But um, also they give us a conversation, right? We can have a conversation about those things and that's where we can take the action into our engagement with escapist media into, you know, change or or even just new ways of thinking Mm. yeah because it's true even escapist entertainment even if it does have sometimes grim elements it generally does end positively it's the happy ending yeah is there ever has there ever been an escapist tv series or film that hasn't ultimately had a happy ending well i mean i would say that all film does give us a sense of escapism Mm. tv does because it's taking us out of our everyday experience yes and letting us see the world through different different perspectives. But the the things that we kind of more regularly associate with escapism, like um, 
you know, blockbuster films and, you know, big fantasy narratives and things like that, they're often kind of tied up in that idea of a happy ending and a kind of closed narrative that kind of finishes, finishes things off and we can, we can feel good at the end. Chaos and order. Chaos and order. (laughs) Winnie, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. So with Order Restored, we've come to the end of our series on escapism. Thank you to all our guests in this series, Dr. Whitney Monaghan, Dr. Clem Basto, Associate Professor David Orazi and Professor Michael W. Clune. You can learn more about their work by visiting our show notes. We'll be back next week with an all-new topic. Hey, listeners, we love your five-star ratings and reviews. Keep them coming. Tell us what you really think about a topic or just let us know the last episode you listened to. Your feedback makes a difference. Why just listen to the podcast? Visit Monash University's YouTube channel to see a video version of what happens next. You can also watch this episode on Monash Lens. Visit lens.monash.edu. Thank you for joining What Happens Next. 